Hello you, welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Poltergeist, we're talking about the 1982 Poltergeist, and we're talking about it with Carmen Maria Machado. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Poltergeist is a 1982 American supernatural horror film directed by Toby Hooper and written by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grace, and Mark Victor. It stars, among others, Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, and Bernice Street, and it was produced by Spielberg and Frank Marshall. The film focuses on a suburban family whose home is invaded by vengeful ghosts that abduct their youngest daughter. I can't believe that in this conversation we talked about this movie, and we never brought up the fact that Craig T. Nelson's character is reading a biography of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it's surprising that this never came up. Carmen Maria Machado is an American short story author, essayist, and critic best known for Her Body and Other Parties, a 2017 short story collection, and for her memoir in The Dream House, which was published in 2019. Carmen is frequently published in The New Yorker, Granta, Lightspeed Magazine, and other publications. It's been on You're Wrong About a number of times, and we are uh, truly blessed to have Carmen here talking about Poltergeist with us. How is everything going in your world? How is your life? What have you watched? What have you read? What have you listened to? What is moving you in a positive direction? Let us know how you're doing. We're on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. We are on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. We always love to hear from you. And don't you forget it, that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. Uh, When you support us there, you get bonus episodes in exchange for that support. You get a monthly conversation. Uh, We kind of have two series going on right now in our bonuses. One is about Sex and the City, and the other is uh, is about movies related to the character Hannibal Lecter and uh, maybe television shows. So if you're interested in any of those, or even if you're not, and you just like making the show possible, please support us over on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You make this a real show that we can keep doing week to week, and we really appreciate uh, your help in making that possible. All right, that's uh, that's it from me for now. Let's talk with Carmen. Let's talk about Poltergeist. Let's talk about Haunted Families. Let's talk about Cursed Productions. Let's talk about everything that comes to mind when we think about 1982's Poltergeist. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Neither of us went for an inside uh, Poltergeist joke. I don't know why. I'm so happy we're covering this fantastic summer movie, which is a movie that's been asked for many times, uh, especially when we were a dad-focused show. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because the star of this film, I'm going to say right up front, is Joe Beth Williams as a mom yes. and also as a very hot, I guess want to make sure we say at the very start, Joe Beth Williams so hot in this movie it's really under discuss super super hot <laughs> but um we haven't covered it yet we i think we were waiting for the perfect opportunity and then the perfect opportunity presented itself and sarah with whom are we discussing poltergeist we oh my god we're discussing poltergeist with carmen maria machado yes. who is so wonderful she's right in front of us She's radiant. And we talked on You're Wrong About about Go Ask Alice over the course of three whole episodes. And it was like, that was the best piece of summer media I think I've produced. (laughs) And so I'm so happy to be talking about this like, oh, my God, this movie. This movie, Carmen. Hello. Hello. What a joy to be here. Hi. Hi. Tell us about you first and foremost for anyone who does not know and tell us uh, about your relationship with uh, with Poltergeist. I will, I will. So um, my name is Carmen Maria Machado. I am an author of many types of things. At this point, I feel like I've lost count. I'm like doing all this mm-hmm. new stuff. Who knows? I write books. I write other things. So my relationship with Poltergeist, the reason that I asked to do Poltergeist for this podcast, is a story that has been in my family for many years, mm-hmm. I guess really my whole life or most of my life, which is a story of 
male weaponized incompetence, (laughs) (laughs) which is that when I was about five years old, my mother left me with my father and she came back from her errands. My father was asleep on the lazy boy Mm -hmm. and I was at his feet awake watching Poltergeist with eyes as large as saucers. (laughs) And my mother woke my father up and was like, you know, Ray, she's she's like she's right here. Um, what are you, what are you doing? And he just, you know, he had something else on. He fell asleep. I just watched Poltergeist, some huge chunk of it. But of course, this happened so early in my life that I don't remember. Like, I don't have any memory of it happening. But what I do remember is that my entire childhood, I was just plagued by images in my mind, <laughs> in my nightmares. That I did not know where they came from. They really upset me. And they were like, just, it was just like a massive part of like my fear and anxiety growing up. And then when I was in my 20s, um, I lived in Berkeley and I was dating this guy. And there was a theater in Berkeley that showed like $5 throwback movies on like Tuesdays or something. And so they were showing Poltergeist. And at this point, I'm like, you know, an avowed horror fan. And I was like, let's go. I've never seen Poltergeist. Let's go see Poltergeist. And so we went to see Poltergeist. And I just sat in the chair having just like a, you know, PTSD flashback to like this moment from my childhood and realizing that all these images that had been sort of plaguing me all suddenly were in order and all like made narrative sense with each other. And I was like, this is the movie that I must, I must have seen this as a child and just didn't remember seeing it. And so I was just, you know, obviously horrified. And my boyfriend like did not understand my reaction. He was just like, yeah, it's a horror movie. And I was like, no, you don't understand. This has like shaped my entire life. Oh my God. (laughs) That's like if I didn't know what Amadeus was. Truly, right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. But then suddenly, suddenly you see it many years later and it's like this, just these like pieces suddenly make sense in your brain. For you, Carmen, because this movie, the imagery is terrifying. I can't imagine. Like, what worse? Did you see lamps sort of screw into light bulbs and glow? Like, what did you see? (laughs) It was funny because also, like, I haven't really, I don't think, seen it since in my 20s watching it with my boyfriend. I've seen some of the other, like, the sequels Mm. and things. But Mm -hmm. the two that I remember most strongly, well, the three. So there was the tree coming through the window. Ooh, yeah. Which was just, I grew up with, like, trees outside my window. You know, whatever. It's, Mm. like, it's very, like, it's very easy to understand why that would just, like, translate to a night because you're like oh like (laughs) i've seen a tree outside of a window um and then the clown doll obviously it wasn't so much the clown doll i mean i had actually i also had nightmares from slappy from goosebumps (laughs) so definitely like dolls ventriloquist dummies i found kind of unsettling but i was really afraid of something dragging me under the bed that was like a real terror of mine throughout my childhood again like not 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 that unusual i think pretty standard for a lot of kids but then also the scene where the guy peels off his own face in the mirror oh yeah i've had thanksgiving dinner with that guy he's emma eisenberg's like uncle wait what (laughs) yes Wait, what? Hold the presses. Wait, wait, wait. Sweetest guy you'll what? ever meet. <laughs> Emma, Emma is a friend of ours, a mutual friend yeah. of ours. Actually, I think, Sarah, that's how I met you. Wasn't no, it totally, Emma? yeah. Wait, I did not know that. That is so funny. I'm going to text her immediately after this. Good, <laughs> it's good. like wild. Yeah. Okay, well, that man was in my nightmares as a child. You can meet him. It might, like, help you with your, your trauma. <laughs> just really, like, purge some stuff. I'm like, I just yeah. need to, like, talk, see that you still have a face. You look good. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> but that scene, it was funny because this time around watching it last night, I was like, oh, the special effects are so good. I mean, I'm, I'm just such a junkie for good special, for, like, you know, practical effects in, like, 80s horror movies. And, oh, yeah. and it was just so so, so cool to see it and realize what was happening. But of course, as a child, it was just like, you know, pure nightmare fuel. And my girlfriend watching it with me was like, knowing the story was like, I cannot believe that you saw this as a child. I would have never recovered. <laughs> like, it's amazing that you're like a functioning human being. Right? This is a terrifying movie. <laughs> yeah, it's really terrifying. And Alex, something I feel like we talk about a lot on this show is that like the 80s were such an interesting time by today's standards and by the standards of people who don't remember them because like they were a time when there really were like maybe 80 movies in America each year that you could even access in a theater at some point and most big budget movies wide release movies like this one were kind of intended for absolutely everybody and so kids would just like 
see the darndest things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, people will talk about how E.T. traumatized them. Understandably, like E.T., it's like, you know, the government comes in. It's terrifying. You don't have any context. It's scary. But this movie is like E.T., but instead of accidental horror, at the end, there's just a 45-minute haunted house scene because it has all the beats of a steven spielberg like family movie yeah and then it's like you know what how about we end this in abject horror it's incredible (laughs) it's like the pacing of it i mean we're we're gonna get into it but it it also occurs to me when you mention et that like both this and et are about a family that is unconventional by early 80s standards because in one case it's a single mom where the dad ran off with a younger girlfriend and in this case Although very subtly, it's a blended family after a divorce because we have Dominique Dunn, who is Craig T. Nelson's daughter from his previous marriage. And then he has two little kids with Joe Beth Williams. And there are also movies where like there's an older sibling observing kind of this world of children where there's a little boy and a little littler girl who make contact with something. <laughs> I also wonder if the fact that this movie was probably like singularly traumatizing is also the fact that it's rated PG because I'm pretty sure this came before PG-13 was a rating. Yeah. Definitely. And like, it definitely should have been PG-13. There's an episode of You're Wrong About about that. You should listen to it, folks. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. I feel like you get PG ratings for movies where characters smoke now. You yeah, know? S- Sarah, can you, before we uh, get uh, even more granular, uh, mm-hmm. would you mind touring us through the haunted house that is uh, Poltergeist 1982. Oh my god, I'm so excited. This movie also came out yesterday 41 years ago on June 4th. It's a Gemini. (laughs) Okay, so in Poltergeist, we open with the TV signing off at late at night. This is something that TV stations used to do. They would like play the national anthem or weirdly a lot of them you would like have footage of a guy flying and a poem about being an air force pilot and the tv used to do that by itself and it wasn't because it thought it was good for the people but because they were like all right that's all we can afford to make or to buy for you go to bed go to sleep we'll be back and it's also so funny that this is like clearly on some level a movie about the insidiousness of TV in American life. But look, by today's perspective, you're like, mm, seems pretty sidious, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It, like, it sets up boundaries for you. <laughs> so poltergeist. Okay. So we open with the TV. <laughs> We're in the opening shot. <laughs> yeah. We're in the opening shot, everybody. We open with the TV sign off. Craig T. Nelson has fallen asleep in front of the TV and there's like a little flicker that things are going to get weird. Is it that Carol Ann sleepwalks downstairs? Is this the very first thing that happens? Well, there's that delightful thing where the dog goes and checks on everybody after having stolen oh, some food. Yeah. And there's, I, which I, as a del- I loved the dog just existing in this movie and like never really in peril and just like <laughs> that being so there nice. the whole time. It's like actually quite soothing. <laughs> it is. He's just like, hi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't really fully grasp what's going on, but I just want to be a good boy for you. I'm obedient to all humans, ghosts, yeah, I'm obedient, exactly. whatever yeah. you need. But then, yeah, Carol Ann goes downstairs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Carol Ann goes downstairs because the TV, there are spirits in the TV that are apparently already kind of talking to her, trying to reach her. And it is like this movie is so beautifully established, I think, like the sort of look of the house. It's like the way the characters interact with each other and kind of talk over each other. It's a little bit Robert Altman-esque. I'm allowed to say Altman-esque once a year, so there it is. Saved it until June. Great. And I feel like horror movies today like have it so down to a formula that they often just kind of give in a temptation because it's the easiest thing to do. And they're like, here's the angelic family that's all about to have horrible shit happen to them. Look at them. Haven't you met them 500 times before? And you're like, I have. That's nice. And these people feel like pretty specific to me in a great way. Yeah. The on-ramp to this is the family you're going to get ter- is going to get terrorized, I think is the best I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's the best. Like we get a 
all we get the the shape of all of these people as like a collective and as individuals, which is really nice. Like, you know, I, I kind of feel like a hallmark of doing this now is being a little cheeky and being like, we know a bad thing's going to happen to this person or sort of like mm-hmm. lingering shots on things that'll like come up later. Yeah. And allow you to kind of like be on the side of the director or the movie in a way. Yeah. And in this case, like even when things are they do this really brilliant thing where when things are getting weird, like they are engaging with the occult. <laughs> Mm-hmm. they're leaning into it mm-hmm. in a way that mm-hmm. as text you're like come on but when you see them doing it you're like I could see myself doing that <laughs> yeah I read I was reading like a little oral history of the movie and I did read that a lot of those family scenes were improvised which I wonder is <gasps> if, if that's if that's part of why if they feel so lived in and so human and I think it was saying it was partially because they were trying to get comfortable with these like child especially the girl who plays Carol Ann mm. and they were trying to kind of get comfortable with her and like you know and also the scene where they're like smoking weed and just like being cute like <laughs> with each other like that new smokeless weed I, I love that <laughs> it was but that with that scene I know we're not there yet but my girlfriend was like I love this hot young stoner couple she was like completely right. in love with them the whole time she was like I want them to be okay I'm like very worried about them <laughs> like, oh my god and like spoiler but like I think nobody dies in this movie. No, I think the no. body count is zero. Yeah. Nobody dies. Yeah. And it's terrifying. Yeah. And that really says something, you know? And like, look, I love gory movies. I love gore. I love just slashers where like 17 people die in an hour. I love Friday the 13th part seven. <laughs> I'm not trying to be elitist with my horror movie taste, but there really is something to be said for how much you can do without killing anybody yeah. just to like test yourself. Totally. Absolutely. So yeah, we have this lovely family, the Freelings. We have the dad, Stephen, played by Craig T. Nelson. We have the mom, Diane, played by Jo Beth Williams, who just like all of her outfits are perfect. I love her. She's so hot. She's so that like white so tunic thing she was wearing. I was like, first of all, I'd wear that right now. <laughs> and she's so dreamy. She's gorgeous. I like could not stop looking at her. She's so beautiful. Yeah. Between her and Zelda Rubenstein, there are incredible outfits in this mm-hmm. movie. Like yeah. everyone is mm-hmm. like, well, I was going to say everyone's well dressed. Those two are extremely well dressed. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And. Okay, so we have her, her husband, who works for the real estate company that is basically building in phases this um, planned suburb in Southern California. This was shot in Simi Valley, which, again, is the setting of E.T. And there's, you know, I think Steven Spielberg called this and E.T. like suburban dreams and suburban nightmares. And it is like, I love the idea of like, what if these both happened in the same world? And then there would be these like L.A. Times articles about like, what happened in the summer that there was both an alien and ghosts in (laughs) Southern California? You can't tell me these aren't the same. This is the same universe. Right. And then we have their teenage daughter, Dana, played by Dominique Dunn, who Alex, you and I both love Mm. very much. And Dominique Dunn, this movie came out in June of 1982, and she was murdered by her boyfriend um, on October 30th of that same year. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'll talk about her more as we continue, but I feel like my introduction to Poltergeist, which I'm sure is true for many people who grew up watching weird A&E specials in the late 90s, is the idea that it was this cursed film because Dominique Dunn was murdered and Heather O'Rourke, who plays Carol Ann, the girl who was cast when Steven Spielberg looked at Drew Barrymore and said, more angelic, <laughs> um, died of, I think, a rare disorder. She died of like a like a birth defect. Like it was actually, it's like really? they had like misdiagnosed it as Crohn's disease, but it turned out she mm-hmm. had like a bowel obstruction. I was like reading about this because I was also, and yeah, and the family, it was awful. And then, yeah, she died like really suddenly, but she'd had this like problem for a very long time. And the family mm-hmm. like sued. It was like this whole this very sad story. But God. yeah. Yeah, right. And then and then I feel like, you know, you watch these dumb A&E specials as a tween and they're like, was Poltergeist cursed? And it's like, well, the curse here is our failure to recognize the seriousness of domestic violence. Yeah. And in this case, the medical system not working right and misdiagnosing a child. So these are both like very real systemic problems that like, if it's more fun for us, we could see them as curses, but it's not a ghost. Mm-hmm. Leave ghosts out of this. 
I saw someone tweeting today about there was like some new potential UFO news and who knows what it means. So I was talking about it. It's like they, you know, like these people know, like billionaires know that there's like some end of the world near and like the whatever, some classic sort of response to wild news. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we know the world is ending by our own hands. Like it doesn't need to be... Yeah. Another more fantastic thing. But I don't know. There seems to be some comfort in feeling like, you know, the the curse that came for these two children are not the curses that are like typical to the ones that we experience all the time. They're like another curse. It's like a layer of comfort. Well, not to get too like thinky this early, (laughs) but I do feel like also if you think about like what Poltergeist is about, right, it's like the American desire to just like rip up the tombstones and leave the graves and just like build, build, build and expand. And yeah. it's like the curse of America, right? I mean, oh my God, yeah. totally, the movie yeah. opens with the national anthem. So it feels like very appropriate. So I feel like in a way the curse is just an extension of what the movie's themes, like inadvertently so, but right. It feels like all very consistent. Wow. Yeah. The curse, the curse of this movie that it covers is, is a real like America fucks around and finds out. Okay, so Dominique Dunn, and then we have their middle child named Robbie, probably. He's like the an iconic <laughs> middle child. Almost that completely kid looks irrelevant like a Robbie. to this movie. <laughs> someone has to get dragged out of a window by a tree, and someone has to get dragged under his bed by a clown. <laughs> yeah. Good news. His name is Robbie. Great news. Okay, good. Yeah. And then we have our youngest daughter, Carol Ann. Like Drew Barrymore, but more angelic. Also, like, a little bit Rhoda Penmark coded with those blonde bangs. You're like, something is going to either happen to this kid or she's going to be possessed or something. Yes. She's too cute. And, you know, Carol Ann seems to be communing with the TV when it goes to static. But we build to a slow simmer at first. And Jo Beth Williams is the first one, aside from Carol Ann, I guess, to realize something is going on because... The chairs around the kitchen table. Joe Beth Williams is the first one, aside from Carol Ann, to realize that something is going on. And she does when the chairs around the kitchen table start moving. And there is a fantastic scene, speaking of how much you can do with both practical effects and non overtly scary things. Carmen, I want you to describe it. Oh, yeah. So she sort of comments that the, she's like, oh, I told you to push in the chairs. She pushes in the chairs. All the kids have just gone to school. And except for Carol Ann, and she's got Carol Ann kind of perched on the counter. Then she comes back into the room, and they're kind of out again. And she's like, I thought I told you. Did you do this? I thought I told you to do this, to, to push the chairs in. She pushes them in again. Then she, like, leans down to get something. You can sort of see in the corner of the shot that Carol Ann's not moving. She, like, leans down. Camera follows her. She stands back up, and all the chairs are, like, pyramided on top of each other, on top of the table. It is such a – and I, like, don't know how they did that, and I love it. It's such a good shot. It's so – fucking terrifying and so effective like just so simple and so effective oh yeah so good i love all of that so much i'm a huge practical effects fan i love all of the effects in this movie like nothing now seems off like everything works really well my one thing that i wondered watching this movie more than ever before is like what is being communicated by any of these actions like chairs move steak crawls across the counter chairs in pyramid like what is the message doesn't matter but like i just it's a very creative uh series of messages <laughs> i guess i sort of wonder if like because i i guess you're right that hauntings almost usually the details of them have like almost narrative structures to them like what you know like mm-hmm. help me is being written or something that's like right, right, communi- right. communicating like a narrative yeah. right exactly <laughs> but i wonder if maybe the fact this is just me sort of spitballing but i wonder if the fact that they all seem kind of chaotic is evidence of the fact that it's like many spirits, mm. like all together. Oh yeah, wow, yeah, totally. And they're all communicating like different needs, and they don't know that they're That's dead. Awesome. And there's like, and so it's like almost like an expression of like the plethora of spirits that are like in the house. It's not just one. I love that. I love that too. And the the chairs thing is also it's like it's nice when a movie stays at least for a while inside the vocabulary of like what would scare you based on your expectations of everyday life. And like, mm-hmm. if that happened to you in real life, like that would scare the living daylights out of you. Oh my God. It's so scary. That one thing, if that one thing happened, you'd talk about it for the rest of yeah, your life. Ever. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> well, it also just like escalates from like a thing you wouldn't necessarily register, which is like the chairs coming out to instantly being like, that is literally impossible, like in one shot. And that's the thing. I think it's like that escalation from just like, 
a weird detail to like this impossible act, I think is what makes it so creepy. Yeah, it's great. And also one strange thing about this movie is that it's got the name Steven Spielberg in the credits like 85 times, but it was directed by Toby Hooper, Mm -hmm. apparently with Steven Spielberg guiding his hand uncomfortably for many parts of it. But we love Toby Hooper. He did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is my favorite horror movie. And he's a special guy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah, someone I'm sure someone knows and is like some people are like really into the did Toby Hooper fully direct this? Did Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg puppet drive like it's a it's a drama that people have like very strong opinions on. I'm just happy to know that Toby Hooper in one way or another directed two of my favorite horror movies. Yeah. Well, and I do think that you can I think at least that I can feel his style in it. Like it does feel to me in in ways I didn't appreciate as much before watching this very Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque where like Mm -hmm. in that movie the way these young people are like talking and interacting with each other it feels very similar it feels very improvisational there are five specific people they're talking about stuff that's like not really thematically meaningful but it's just like gives them texture and makes everything creepier when it happens and they're both haunted house movies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah hey (laughs) I feel like a really common problem, like I am definitely like, I will watch basically any horror movie, but I will also complain about if I hate it. That's one of the great, the joys of the genre, right? Truly. I'll be like, I saw that it was dog shit, you know, and then I have like a million feelings about it. But I do feel like a thing that I notice in a lot of like contemporary horror movies, especially like toothless remakes of horror classics where I'm, or like bloodless remakes where I'm just like, why, why Mm -hmm. did you do this? What is the Mm -hmm. point? I feel like there's this gesture always toward almost like universality and like characters yeah. feel like really nonspecific. And I, I think that there's something really, and the, the idea being that like, it's, I guess it's more universal or like, but it's like, obviously like spec- universality through specificity is what makes them, these movies work when they work. Yeah. Right. Which is like, totally. they feel like really specific people and it's still a story mm-hmm. about a family and there's like things that you're going to relate to or whatever. But I think that there's like this weird thing where like contemporary I guess movies in general, but I noticed with horror a lot where you're just trying to like check the boxes of like who these people are. It just always feels very generic in this way that I find utterly maddening. And so when it's not like that, like I just, yeah, like I feel like these characters are so deliciously specific. One, when they feel like types, it's like a race to start killing them off. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And so we have our slow build, we have our chairs, and then we cut to Craig T. Nelson, (laughs) perfectly cast, coming home. And his wife is like, honey, oh my God, you'll never, we've got like a real something big is happening here because she's figured out that there's a spot on the kitchen floor where if you put a chair or yourself, like you will be dragged across the floor by something. Before when she puts Caroline on the counter, Caroline's like staring at the static on the television, mm. and she says, "Honey, don't do that. You'll ruin your eyes." And then she switches to like a war, like a war <laughs> show or a war movie. Which is also just like... You're like, that's better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's a perfect illustration of like parenting priorities in the eighties. It's like a really great like if you meet any of us who were born around this time and you're confused or like where my Gen Z brother is always kind of rolls his eyes around like millennial type stuff. This movie will really help explain why a lot of us turn out the way we did. So Joe Beth Williams discovers this, like something's going on. She's excited about it. She wants Craig T. Nelson to like sit on the spot and be dragged. The way she describes it is amazing it's like there's no air but you can breathe she's like super excited about it it's very like of the spiritualist movement where like ghosts Mm -hmm. were like one of the things they did was like get women off especially married ones apparently Mm. so she's like ghost curious basically (laughs) but then the shit really hits the fan craig t nelson is like we're not going in that kitchen until i know what's going on he's like not having it but then the shit hits the fan and the tree outside Robbie's window, which he's been freaked out by, crashes in through the window and grabs him and pulls him out of his room. And then a vortex opens in the closet and like everything is being sucked into it. And little Carol Ann is holding on to her beautiful wicker headboard. So Carol Ann is, is being sucked by this like bright vortex. And before her parents can save her, she is pulled into it 
and just vanishes into another dimension. And she can kind of talk to her parents through the TV a little bit. And that's kind of, that's our first act. And so Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson call in the help of parapsychology experts who they find it like you see Riverside or something. <laughs> ghost cops. Ghost cops, ghost academics. Ghost academics, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. They work in, in the department that Bill Murray is in at the start of Ghostbusters. <laughs> so they call in the experts. It's also, um, so we have Dr. Lesh played by a stately um, woman in a blouse. Um, <laughs> Ryan, who's our technician, our ghost technician, who is, I feel like, doing AV stuff. And then we have Marty, Emma Eisenberg's friend. So they set up shop the first night to observe. And they're like, yes, we've seen. What is their like lame example of what they've seen before? Oh, he says that he watched a, a toy car. This movie has some incredible comedic moments that I was really appreciating. <laughs> oh my God, so good. And yeah, the, the line where he's like, yes, we observed like a toy car moving like seven meters over seven hours. And it was like impossible to see it with the naked eye, but we got it on camera. And then they just wordlessly opened the door to this room and there's just like objects spinning in circles everywhere. It looks like a Peter Gabriel video in there. It's so funny. It's so funny. It's such a good moment. And then smash cut to Martha's hands like shaking violently as she tries to take a sip of tea. Like just really funny. It's so, yeah. I do think that like great horror to me, like all great horror has some amount of humor in it. And it could be just like the tiniest little whiff. It's like how people feel about vermouth in a martini. <laughs> or it could be like quite a bit of it. But like this is a funny movie and I yeah. feel like we need that. No, there are some really, really, really a beautiful moments of comedic timing in this movie that I think, and I think it like, yeah, it elevates the horror, right? Because these people are capable of like lightheartedness. Like the narrative has this like aeration or this levity to it, which then makes the horror that much more intense, right? When it does. Come. Yeah. And it's also, I feel like to me, Joe Beth Williams is like really the center of this movie because so much of this movie, in a way, I didn't appreciate until watching it again today is about the power of a mother's love for her children and specifically mm. her child in the case of Carol Ann, who like the bulk of this movie is about them then trying to get back and her mother being really the one who's able to do it and it's like it this movie made me like really emotional yeah. oh my god like i cried a lot <laughs> i lose it when they're bringing the paranormal investigator team in and she's talking we hear her talk to carol ann for the first time and just like joe beth williams acting in that scene where she's talking and like you know, like clearly they've done this before. This has happened before because she knows that it can happen. But like she's always like kind of talking to her like it might be the last time she's talking to her or like she expected she was never going to talk with her again. And I every time in that scene, I cry when she's talking to Carolyn in front of everyone. Oh, my God. It's it's incredible. Yeah. It, this movie is for a movie that, again, like on the surface is the kind of horror that gives Carmen nightmares uh, uh, throughout her entire life. Like the subtlety in the acting, particularly with Joe Beth Williams, is is tremendous. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. And then I think horror works if you get like the the sour and the sweet or something mm -hmm. where it's like to mm. understand what it means to have like, you know, to lose somebody. It's like you have to sort of see what people are to each other. Yes. In some sense. So they spend the night to just kind of record and observe and see what's going on. And so Marty very memorably like is like, I'm going to go get a snack. And so he like grabs some chicken out of the fridge, which I kind of love that as a character move. <laughs> it's like that chicken is not for you. <laughs> and then he grabs a raw steak like he's going to make a steak in like, the middle of the night. I was like, that is an unhinged snack that's not a snack it's a steak it's like i'm gonna have a drumstick and also i'm gonna cook a steak yeah. in the home of these strangers whose daughter is missing at like three in the morning like it's at the very least it's like the timing is just very strange like why because yeah. then like the the steak like starts like moving around and then it like it's a great it's beautiful it's very evil dead actually 
Yes, it is, definitely. It, like, kind of regurgitates itself or something. <laughs> yeah. The steak's gross. And again, I know that Ghostbusters came in a couple years later, but another Ghostbusters parallel is, like, the stuff comes out of the refrigerator, supernatural shit happens to the refrigerator stuff. It's like, the stuff in your refrigerator is the most relatable stuff in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the steak moves. I wrote a whole essay for this A24 book a few years ago that was about horror and refrigerators. It was, like, refrigerators <sighs> in horror movies because, and actually, now Ooh. that I'm saying that, I, like, I don't think Poltergeist is in it. I guess because it's not really in the refrigerator where the horror is happening it's like the food Mm. but i do write about ghostbusters obviously and many other classic moments of like fridge horror i just in looking looking trying to find that essay so i remember it later i just googled your name obviously in refrigerator and i didn't find the a24 article yet but i did find that your refrigerator was profiled (laughs) on the paris review all about that yes I've done- why didn't you introduce yourself at the front end by you you, you might know my refrigerator from the parish <laughs> god i like literally i do so much stuff for promo i do not even remember i don't even know what you're talking about like i literally have no memory i'm sure i wrote it but i have no me- or was interviewed about it but i have no memory yeah. of it <laughs> That's a great approach, though. Like, yeah. I, I, want, yes. I really want a whole actually quarterly that's just dedicated to people's refrigerators now that I'm thinking about it. Right. Yeah. Easily. Or a Tumblr. Yes. <laughs> Alex, I can send you that essay. Just email me and remind me. I'll send it to you. I have a copy I will do that. Yet. Thank you. <laughs> nice. Okay. So Marty, there's maggots in the steak. He looks down at the chicken he's dropped. There's maggots there. He, like, runs to the bathroom to barf, and then he looks at his face, and it's like... Does he just like compelled to start pulling his own skin off? He like, it's like he's washing his face and it's kind of Mm -hmm. wet and it almost like looks like there's something happening. And then he kind of begins to kind of pull at his face and then it's cutting to like the sink where it's getting kind of bloody. And then at some point the shot changes and it's like obviously like a prosthetic head that is being ripped into but, like, the flesh is being, like, pulled off and, like, thrown down in huge bloody chunks into the sink. It's a really horrifying image. Again, one that clearly shaped the shit out of me. <laughs> like, the whole trajectory of my life. But, yeah, that – it's such a, like – it's a great special effect. It's, like, very upsetting. And it is, like, the kind of thing where you look at it and you're like, I know on some level that that's a latex head, but, like, that's not my business. Right. <laughs> uh, it's icky. It's like yeah. a classic nightmare thing too, you know? And then like suddenly it's like he he's fine again. So he books it. And I also find it interesting that like the only white man on the paranormal investigation team is gone. Useless. Useless. <laughs> Completely useless. And, and Craig T. Nelson, like I like him. Yeah, another nice Ghostbusters parallel. In this movie. But he he does he's very unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, the, mo- the most we get from him really is like he connects the dots for us at the end just in case we weren't paying any attention. <laughs> right, that's his job actually in this movie. Yeah, his job is to help connect the dots out loud like he's doing some expeditional dialogue for us. Yeah, it is like there's not an absent dad, but he's like he's the kind of teller of the story and then it's up to Joe Beth Williams to kind of like she's just, you know, yeah, she's our final mom. So we're we're left with Dr. Lesh and and Ryan on the paranormal team. They've spent the night. Dr. Lesh has had a nice talk with Robbie about spirits and we're just kind of seeing how the family is functioning and like Joe Beth Williams really like talking to her daughter and, you know, really holding it together, but also I don't know, I guess yeah, everything about her performance feels incredibly real i think that that really grounds us in reality where it's like this big paranormal thing in this movie that is this structure that we use to attach big scary set pieces to but it's really about this extremely real thing of just like loving your child and your child being in trouble and so Mm. they bring in zelda rubenstein who like I feel like was very important to the 80s and 90s. <laughs> Sarah, I can't I can't remember if I sent you this. I think I maybe sent you this. I I seen on the um the AIDS Memorial Instagram feed, they uh showed a commercial that she was in that I was not familiar with. Mm. And this is from Wikipedia uh talking about the commercial. This is Rubenstein became active in the fight against HIV AIDS in 1984. She appeared in a series of advertisements directed towards gay men specifically. Three years before the president. <laughs> right. She she appeared in a series of advertisements directed towards gay men specifically, promoting safer sex and AIDS awareness. I'd sent you, I think, a, a video of, of this campaign. And it's really tremendous because she's like looking up at this like 
sort of Adonis-like gay man. And she's like, remember how I told you when you were a kid to, um, you know, to like play safely and take care of yourself? Well, I need you to do that again. And it's like just a tremendous... Oh, I'm tearing. I know. It's, <laughs> it's just, so it's really, it's incredibly, I mean, just knowing how fucking cowardly Reagan was. Yeah. It's really tremendous. And that it's like taking the approach of like a loving parent. Right. Telling you what to do. Oh, it's so sweet. He's perfect. Yeah. Well, and also when the team was spending the night, they captured this like apparition, this like beautiful apparition that actually reminds me of like the part in, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark when the Nazis open yes. the Ark and they're like, it's beautiful because it's like God appears as a hot babe for a moment before killing all the Nazis. <laughs> oh, there's that funny, another like funny comedic moment where like Craig T. Nelson is trying to trick her because he's like answering her in his mind. And so she asks him a question. He answers to her in yes. his, his mind. Then she like asks it again. And then he answers our light. And he's like, I was saying it within my mind. If she was real, she would have known. And then she comes out and she's like, basically, she just says like, I don't play games. Like she like did hear him. <laughs> like it was just, oh God, so funny. Also, before I think she shows up in a, in a scene that reads in an amazing way today, they like send Robbie and the dog away. And like, we can obviously guess that they're sending him to like grandparents or whatever, but they don't say it. So they just like, he just gets into the taxi and the dog jumps in after him. And Joe Beth is like, call me. And it makes it sound like they're sending him to find an apartment downtown. Well, but you missed the best part, which is the first thing he does is he hurls a briefcase into the taxi. So he like hurls in a briefcase. And my girlfriend was like, where is he going? in the dog gets in and she's like wait they're just sending this child alone in a taxi with his briefcase and his golden retriever to where did they give him a leash yeah it's just like it's a really weird i one can only imagine it was cut from something longer that made slightly more sense but it is a very funny moment in 1982 you just put your unleashed dog in a taxi and just sent him to the airport (laughs) so yeah so okay so they sent their child and dog away because they're gonna like get down to business they're going to try and like get into the void and pull carolan out and so what is her name tagina 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 okay so basically she explains that carolan needs to lead the ghosts over to the other side question mark the go- okay the ghosts love her youth and her aliveness and they're supposed to go to the uh, to the light and move on, but they mm-hmm. are so distracted by this little towhead that what she has to do is like run to the other side, like she's running. Well, excuse me, she needs to run to the light, like she's running like towards a cliff with a pack of dogs chasing her, and then pivot <laughs> last minute so when she's out of the way, all the dogs go off the cliff or all the ghosts go into the light, and then she's able. To come back, I guess. Wow. What a functional plan. That's so practical. <laughs> this is the first time I ever understood it, and I could still have it wrong, but this is the first time I was like, "What? do we want to go to the light or not? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, so they, okay, so they have this plan, and then basically they're able to send Jobeth Williams into the vortex with a rope tied around her because they figured out that there's like a loop there's like a part of the house where you go into it and a part where you come out of it and you like fall onto the living room floor yeah they figure out that like there's a yeah there's a hole like in the living room ceiling or whatever (laughs) that like is the exit of this portal and like the closet is the interior so they're like oh we can actually and like things fall out of the little second portal that like are like old objects that they're like we did these aren't our objects that they're clearly from Mm -hmm. someone else and then yeah they decide to send her through this like digestive tract this like ectoplasmic yeah didact to be like shit out onto the living room floor or vaginally birthed out one could argue because yeah. they both are covered in goo like like babies are true and, it, and again it's like such classic spiritualism because it's like yeah like goo as we learned from our friend chelsea weber smith was like a very important part of the spiritualist movement mm-hmm, like if you needed mm-hmm. to do a seance you needed goo right, right somewhere right, right. <laughs> gotta have that ghostly jizz that ghostly l- lubricant <laughs> i said almost said lubricant but i think jizz is i think jizz is definitely it's, more appropriate. You know, yeah. it's just there's only so many moist areas on the human body is the point <laughs> So 
And so it works. Kyobeth Williams like emerges clutching Carol Ann and it's like beautiful and sexual relief. You're like, ah, the family is safe. But there's 20 minutes left in this movie. My God. <laughs> My girlfriend made me pause the movie. She was like, how many more minutes are left in this movie? Like as they were, <laughs> as, as everything was like really relaxed, the mom's going to take it to like, dye her hair. Lord was like, how many more minutes? I think she knew. She was like, I feel like there's one more movement. I can feel it coming. Yeah. It's like, yep, 20 minutes to go. There's there's more. It's like when you're like 20 minutes into a Law and Order or like five minutes into a Law and Order and they arrest somebody and you're like, well, that's not the guy. Right, right, exactly. To be arrested, it's at a 22 minute mark. But it's hard because Zelda Rubenstein says this house is cleansed. She says it and, yeah. and you really believe her. You're With like a little well, head toss. Yeah, you're like, she, she would know, wouldn't she? I know it's like a trope that it's like the family, like particularly a white family, like gets into a haunted situation. They stay in the house. Like, why do they stay in the house? But like, this is a real don't stay in the house for longer. That Like they got a lot of nice stuff, Alex. What are they going to do? Leave their surround sound. The second I'm released from the house's birthing canal <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm spit out on the ground after I've seen any number of these things. I'm like, I am not once ever again setting foot in the house. We didn't even talk about how, like, while Carol Ann is still in the void, how his boss comes and, like, takes him up on the hill. Yeah. Promises him the house that will be built in this new phase. That's when he looks and sees a cemetery and he's like, well, what will happen yeah. to the cemetery? He's like, oh, we'll just move the cemetery. Very close. No worries. We did it before, once before. Right. Which is like the beginning of that little plot arc of why actually the house is haunted. Like what's actually happened here. Yeah. There's also this incredible line where the boss, who is like the Pathbark spokesman at the time, which is really funny, is like kind of gestures to the Amityville horror. And is like, it's not like it's an ancient tribal burial ground. Right. It's just people. And it's like, yeah, the people in the ancient tribal burial ground aren't people. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like I had really had like a, what is it called? Like Mandela effect of mm. this movie where I was positive that it was a so-called quote unquote ancient, like indigenous burial ground. I like confidently stated that in an episode at some point. Yeah. It's, but it's in, it's in the sequel though, right? It it's is in the, the sequel. One. Yeah. So the sequel, that is like a part plot of the sequel, but the original, it's just that he has that brief mention where he's like, it's not that. Yeah. White people couldn't hurt a fly. Right. Just this, like, just this very casually racist thing. And you're like, okay, got it. But like, yeah, this was actually, that actually is not. But in my brain, I was like positive that this was, that was where that was from. Absolute same. This movie is like, don't sleep on white ghosts, you guys. Truly, yes. <laughs> yeah. So like that, and that whole conversation explains essentially the last 20 minutes of the movie where it's like, yes. Carolyn did get out of that situation, but the haunted house is still haunted yeah. and it's it's spitting corpses at everybody. Well, and, and then like Craig T. Nelson's job in the last reel is to like figure out the plot while Joe Beth Williams is living the plot because like they're having a nice <laughs> night. Their kids are in their pajamas. Dana is with her boyfriend getting a hickey. You notice when she shows back up at the very end, she's got a hickey. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. How is this it. going to affect her blossoming sexuality is what I want to know. Oh my God. I don't know. She seemed really fucking traumatized in that final scene. I was like, I feel yeah. like I would never recover if, if I were her. Yeah. Like, what if the first time you get to, like, X sexual landmark, your house implodes, you know? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Okay. Craig T. Nelson's having a meeting with his, I guess, boss, Teague. And then is it just that the vortex opens again and is is pulling the kids in again? Presumably. Well, there's the the, the, the clown doll. So like the iconic. Oh, my God. The clown doll. Tell us about the clown doll scene. So poor Robbie, who's previously just had this like standoff with this stupid, ugly, really nightmarish, way too long armed clown doll. <laughs> and by the way, for those of you saying what family, what family with young children in the year of our Lord 1982 would buy a giant scary clown? I'll tell you. A lot of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this was a thing people did. The clown is just like truly just a nightmarish object. But so he tries to c cover it up. The like coat or blanket or whatever it is like falls off the doll. Then he hears something, looks back and the chair is empty. 
he sort of peers over the sides of the bed and then the do- the clown with like a malicious expression appears behind him and wraps its arm like around his neck oh and begins God. like dragging him under the bed. It's beautifully set up too because your attention is like directed to him looking under the bed. There's nothing there. You're like, Whew. and then he like sits back up. It's a really good jump scare for sure. And then what's funny is at the end of that little mini arc is is him like ripping the stuffing out of the doll and yelling, I hate you, which is like so specific and like yeah. not what you would expect the child to say. Like, it's like, you hate- That's what kids say when they're pissed off for normal reasons. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or like to their siblings or their parent or whatever. It was just a, a funny detail. But then yeah, the vortex opens back up. And then of course, poor mother is like, you know, hurled up. Like she's like kind of grabbed by yeah. this like spirit- pushed down and then she begins to like roll up onto the ceiling which I guess was like I, I was reading that like apparently it was like the camera it was like an actual like rotating room and like the cameraman was just like strapped to the floor really and they're like shooting her yeah. and she was like really banged up and bruised and like bleeding like from being like rolled around this like tumbler oh god it's a very also I feel like upsetting scene because it also is, it feels like very like set, like like rapey, like because like she's mm-hmm. like you know she's like in her underwear and like a little jersey. Well, and, and the ghost has like pulled up her shirt too, so we know it's like an entity kind of a thing. Exactly, it's like very like it's a very upsetting. Mm. It's yeah, and then she's of course, and then she can hear the children like screaming for her. Oh yeah, well yeah, and it is like I mean I the so like yeah the last maybe fifteen minutes of this movie are just like over the top just letting Joe Beth have it. And so then she's like, she, she sees this like terrifying, like skeleton ghost monster that roars at her and she's Mm. yelling at it. And she's like, you won't hurt my babies. And then she like falls down the stairs. This is also the only horror movie I think I've ever seen that has a grand sweeping gone with the wind staircase in it for people to fall down. (laughs) And then she's running outside trying to get help from the neighbors And in something that Alex feels, I know this comes after this, but feels similar to our favorite Argento movie, Phenomena, like falls into their (laughs) swimming pool, which then turns out to be filled with skeletons and like mummies. Yeah, totally. And also... As many people probably know, those were real skeletons because it was cheaper to buy real human skeletons than fake ones. And... They did not tell Jo Beth Williams that she was going to be acting with real skeletons until after they'd shot the scene. Oh, my God. Didn't they learn the lessons of the movie itself? That they made of the movie they were making? (laughs) Which is don't fuck with human remains and don't tell people that they're working with human remains Mm -hmm. or don't not tell them when that's what they're going to do. Come on, you guys. I can see why people believed in the poltergeist curse. It, it, the movie itself foretold what would happen. <laughs> Truly. So Joe Beth Williams gets out of the swimming pool with the help of her neighbors um, who finally show up to help, which is great because it's like it's this is a very like thunderstormy movie, too. It's raining like crazy. And so she gets back into the house and then Craig T. Nelson, meanwhile, has been figuring out by talking to his boss i guess that like oh this is all happening because you did the same thing you're talking about doing with this other phase of the development to my house and his iconic line in this is like you move the headstones but not the bodies yeah it's his soil and green is people line yeah yeah <laughs> and there's just like coffins like erupting out of the ground everywhere it's so over the top in just the best way, and I really think there should be a poltergeist ride at Universal, and like maybe there was at one time. <laughs> I hope. I would love it. Um, and then how does Joe? How do they save the kids? How does Joe Beth Williams save her babies? Well, she like grabs them, so they're being like sucked into the vortex. She like grabs Robbie's hand. Robbie's holding Carol Ann. Oh, that's right. Uh, she like pulls them out of the room, and they run downstairs. And at some point she sees her husband and then she gets blocked by like a coffin. Like they're trying to get out a few times and they finally get out. It's the, you know, the scramble for the keys, right? Like he's, she's like screaming at him. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, the teenage daughter is like still on her date, right? Like she's not, <laughs> she's not back yet. So it's just like, and the dog is also along. The dog is fine. The dog is just like gets in the car with them, you know? So then they like back out of the driveway. And then as they back out of the driveway, Dana pulls up with her in her date's car gets out and screams this like, um, she's this amazing. I was really like loving that she says what's happening and I can't even imitate it because it's, it is like a a howl scream 
what's happening that just feels like, yeah, correct. That is the correct thing to be asking. Yeah. What the fuck is happening? <laughs> she's a huge hickey on her neck because she's just gotten back from her date. Amazing. And then she gets into the car with her family and they drive away. Mm-hmm. Well, the neighborhood is also like in chaos. Like all this stuff is happening. And then the house, what is it? It like implodes. It like it like yeah. comes into a point and like vanishes. It's like it's swallowed by a black hole or like it swallows itself or something. And the neighbors are watching like. Yeah. Well, you don't see that every day. Truly. <laughs> and then like a few blocks away, you know, a few few streets over, they got E.T. Right. <laughs> and um, it happened. It happened in Southern California. Yeah. And then we get our iconic ending. So good. Where the family just like are limping basically towards the door of their room at the Holiday Inn. We have the big Holiday Inn sign. They're just like so... You know, they've survived, but they're all just like so exhausted and, you know, and then they walk into the room and then Craig T. Nelson comes out and he rolls the TV out and then closes the door. And that's the movie. That final moment of comedic timing. Oh, he uh, shuts, shutting the door, the door opening, the TV just getting shoved out into the fucking It is so great. Yeah, really. And, and, and I love it's like so basically the rules of the game at this point that you have to end a horror movie by being like and they were all fine no they weren't or like they were all fine or were Mm. they that to just like have it end on like kind of this bitterly funny beat is so good and feels like fresh because you don't see it anymore yeah agreed and that's poltergeist pg pg rating (laughs) that ghost pulled a woman's shirt up pg so carmen Tell us, I guess, tell us first, if you would, what it was like to realize in rewatching this in your 20s that this was indeed a movie that existed and this wasn't something that your brain projected. And then what's it been like sort of revisiting it uh, again? It's it's interesting. It's something you have watched in childhood and then in your 20s and then in your 30s. We have different decades represented here. Totally, yeah. I mean, I think that there's, well, I mean, you know, in my memory, I was, you know, like I said, with this, boyfriend at the time and I remember we have like his having these totally different reactions because he's just like watching it like a movie like he's just watching the movie and I am like you know pinned back in my theater chair like just having like a really intense <laughs> response to like seeing all these horrifying images being strung together in narrative order in a way that suddenly makes sense and I think I've discussed this even on this show before but like you know I was one of those kids who like I had a very weird relationship with horror, which is I was sort of terrified of it, obviously, and also loved it. And I was like a deeply anxious, hypochondriac kid, you know, so I would like read horror books, watch horror movies, either voluntarily or involuntarily, and then would be up all night, you know, and just having a lot of anxiety, but still like felt drawn to it in some way. And this has been like the contradiction of my whole life is that I'm like a very anxious person (laughs) who like moves towards my anxiety and not away from it. And so, you know, it's sort of interesting to imagine that like, yeah, in my 20s, also like at a moment when it was like before I even went to grad school for writing. So like I didn't realize that I was going to like go on and like write you know, work that included horror writing professionally. Like, it's kind of weird to imagine that that was coming, but at that point it was still coming in my future. And so, yeah, I remember just like having like this, yeah, like a moment of just like kind of horrifying realization, everything kind of coming together and making sense, trying to explain it to my boyfriend and him just being like, I don't think fully understanding the like gravitas or like the epiphany that I was having like in that moment. Like he was just like, yeah, okay, you saw it as a kid. And I was like, no, you don't understand. (laughs) Like the arc of my whole life has like led to this moment. It's very weird. And then, of course, watching it last night, I was like, God, this is such a fucking good movie. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like the pleasure of getting to recognize the quality of something that I think in my brain, I think in my brain, mm-hmm. I said, I couldn't have, if you had asked me two days ago before I rewatched the movie, is Poltergeist I guess, a good movie or not? I'd be like, well, it's a classic. Like, I know this of the genre, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it in so long. I really couldn't tell you. And watching it outside, I was like, this is a great fucking horror movie. This is like, <laughs> everything is firing. I didn't give this movie more credit before. I think maybe it's that I grew up hearing about it being like a cursed movie and then watched it kind of, not ready to receive it for the specific thing that it is. And I don't know, I guess more knowing it as a movie that was supposed to be so scary that like it could put you in therapy. And then it felt underwhelming based on that. I don't know the like, come on movie, kill me. 
Yeah. It's doing something in horror, which I feel like is hard to find, where it's kind of playing on suburban American fears. It's got like weird sort of reflections of the culture in it. But like, it feels like it's telling a story that's like about a family in peril, but without kind of setting up an enemy that makes the whole thing conservative, if that mm, makes sense. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Craig T. Nelson did a lot of work for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, he did, like <laughs> and then there's a part where like they're talking to like he, he and Joe Beth Williams are talking and she's like, we've worked really hard to like get to this place. Basically. Mm-hmm. Like we worked to get in this house and they were like kind of fondly remembering the house, even though it's got the baggage that it very clearly has now. And I, thought a lot this time about the fact that it's like you do all this work as just being a person like with a job generally like you do all this work you do everything you can and like one thing that's outside of your control can happen and make your entire career and all the work you've done moot because it's built on a crummy foundation whether you know it or not you know he's like doing his job he's selling houses like he's not thinking about it too much and then it turns out that like the reality of the houses that he's selling whether or not he knew it is something where like just the next day it's like you realize that it was all for naught not only was it all for naught a lot of people suffered along the way not only did a lot of people suffer along the way like it's like working for Bear Stearns exactly like you're on the receiving end of like fuck around and find out that's all kind of all I can think about is like this I've seen this story in so many ways so many times personally and by way of like cautionary documentaries and we have it as like the foundation of this like fun family horror movie (laughs) yeah do you think that like that movies like this are happening today and if not why not like what's what is in this that feels special and maybe of a moment well practical effects for starters not to be like old man yells at cloud because i i have truly i now know how you become old man yells at cloud which is like you see so much cgi i see so much cgi and i just want to die yeah but even then you won't feel anything because your death will be cgi There's something tremendous about the practical effects of this movie. But like, again, like the fact that it's like it is a horror movie. Yes, that's like what you come for. But the horror is all stuff that's happening to like people who could have been in another movie. Not about horror. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean? Like if this movie didn't have horror, you would have been like, I just want to see a movie about this family. They're nice. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because they feel they feel lived and they feel real. I guess it is like really a sense of stakes, but like I would have cared if anyone in that movie died, except for like the evil boss who ripped the tombstone, the yeah. gravestone. He could have died, and I would have been like, "Great, good for him." But everybody else, I was like, "No, I feel like invested in these people as people, and like I'm actually really worried for them." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's real." It does feel like important to like kind of have examples that show like nobody has to die for it to be a horror movie, and a and in a way, I feel like that validates our trauma as living people. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, so. So. We know that Craig T. Nelson is a father in this movie. (laughs) Uh, But who, in your view, is the daddy? Carmen, do you want to kick us off? I mean, Joe Beth Williams, obviously. (laughs) Right? Tell us your take. Tell us why. He's perfect. I mean, she just, she just, she takes charge she like does it. I mean, like, oh my God, the scene where they're pulling, where she's going into the portal and they're, Craig e. Nelson is like, she, literally Zelda's like, don't pull on the rope till I tell you. And what does he do? He literally does it. He pulls on the rope, a face comes out of the closet. It's horrifying. It's like, very, but like Joe Beth, she just does it. Yeah, She just does it. She's like, she's like, I know what I need to do to get back my baby. I'm going to fucking do it. I just, I just love her. Yeah, she can be my daddy anytime. Oh my god, she she's gonna make you do housework. Yes. <laughs> my daddy for, and I agree. I mean, I think just like the obvious and right answer is Joe Beth Williams, but I'm gonna do one for Doctor Lesh. Yeah. I love that Doctor Lesh until this moment thought she was like, this is a person who is obsessed with a hobby that was absolutely meaningless before this happened. And then she did it anyway because she felt like it was extremely important. She's embarrassed about her commitment to it. She says she's irresponsible for her commitment to what she's into. And finally, she had an opportunity to put that all to work. And led a really, with the exception of um, Emma's 
cousin or friend or whoever who had to leave halfway through the operation. The team that Dr. Lesh uh, uh, operates is actually very helpful throughout this movie. They're yeah. not charlatans. So I, I thank you, uh, Dr. Blouse Lesh. We appreciate your contribution to this movie. They really, unfortunately, misrepresent the responsibility of people in the ghost hunting industry, which at this point seems to be mostly about walking around in the dark with a night vision camera screaming. (laughs) Sarah, what's yours? My daddy is, I think, is it Ben Burt who did the sound for Star Wars and put the Wilhelm scream in it? And then everyone was like, we love the Wilhelm scream. And you hear the Wilhelm scream also in this movie when Caroline is watching TV and also I guess my daddy is like anyone who worked on sound in this movie as well because like mm. all of the elements of this are working and the sound is great in this movie and we also I'm pretty sure hear the MGM lion roar in the big scary skeleton ghost oh that's great that's scaring Joe Beth Williams that's great. and I I know there are moments where you can kind of see the illusion but I feel like this movie is like it's like it's got a beating heart and it's like a a real story with real stakes as a structure for grand illusions and I love that in a horror movie it makes me feel like I'm you know it feels timeless like humans have always loved spectacle and illusion and this feels like very aware of what it's doing in that way and I love it beautiful and Toby Hooper whose name is not on this nearly as much as Steven Spielberg's is just in terms of like sheer incidences throughout the film but like he's great he contributed a lot to horror I love him yeah the best Carmen thanks for bringing this to us it was so good to get to rewatch this so thank you for having me should people read your refrigerator profile or like if you could pick one thing to send people to <laughs> from this what would it be oh my goodness you know I had an uh, essay about Jennifer's body that was in a horror anthology last fall that was republished in Autostraddle mm. Ooh. about uh, Jennifer's body as like an essentially bisexual text and I'd say I'm, I'm very proud of that essay. I really love it. And you can find it online for free. Fantastic. See you uh, on the other side of the portal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Covered in pink goo. <laughs> All right, everybody. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good Thank you so much to Carmen for being on the episode and for talking about this movie with us. Thanks to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and editing the episode. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make these episodes sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for finding us on Instagram or Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. Thank you for supporting us. Uh, over with Apple Podcast subscriptions or Patreon. You make the show possible. It's true. We can't do it without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, you get bonus episodes uh, for your support over there. And I think that's all she wrote about uh, about Poltergeist. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. Don't you forget it, that you, my friend, are good. <laughs>